0: Hello, hello. I'm here. Hi, May. Are you there? I am here. Can you see me?
1: Yes, yes. (laughs) Hey, wonderful.
0: So, I'm really excited to get to talk to you today because you have such an interesting story, and of course, this work of yours encompasses so much of your own personal experience and and learning so much about truth, maybe overcoming some secrets. So, is it okay if we begin at the beginning? Uh, Maybe we can get to um, how your journey began. Uh, maybe we can get to writing here in a moment, but just generally, how uh, how does your story begin?
1: Well, my story begins, um, the, the lived journey of it begins um, when I'm a child. <laughs> and, um, and my father um, takes me and my mom, we're a family, he takes us to Athens, Greece. Um, and this is the late 60s. It's his first assignment. Um, his first field assignment i should say um with the cia and i'm i i'm i I'm a baby i'm a little over a year old and um and greece for me is a is an amazing place i lived there until i was five and a half i learned to speak greek the culture really made an impact on me mm-hmm. um i had a nanny i was lucky enough to have this young woman who t- taught me greek and, you know who cared for me and the the culture really. Um, Made an imprint on me. And, um, but of course, for my father, it was a job. Um, It was the late 60s. And, um, you know, his job was to, you know, um, to meet informants to sort of fight communism as as it were in the Cold War. Mm -hmm. So once his assignment was over, we left and we went to the United States. And I lived in different places in the United States, places in Texas, places in Virginia. Um, But that first, you know, that first home never left me. And, um, it wasn't just like an exotic place that, oh, I once lived and, um, you know, met, met other cultures and isn't that, isn't that great? You know, it, it was really a part of me. And when I, you know, through my schooling, middle school, high school, um, when I became a young adult and I started to really learn, um, what my, what the CIA was doing in Greece at that time, what my father was involved with in some way, um, it was really hard for me, and um, you know, I, I was much more left-leaning politically than my father. Um, but I just really started to feel ashamed and started to really carry this baggage that my father was on the wrong side of things. That you know, we had arrived just before the Greek military had taken over the Greek government okay. um, and ensued a dictatorship for 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 seven years. We lived there during the dictatorship. I was a baby. I remember nothing about a dictatorship. I remember my beautiful garden, right? <laughs> so, so it was just a slow kind of awakening for me that while I was in my beautiful protected garden, people all over Greece were being uh, interrogated, were being imprisoned, seen as communists, um, often when they were really just fighting to get their government back, mm. um, Um, Because, you know, um, at the time, the Greek military was aligned with the U.S. government, was anti-communist. And so that's how foreign, you know, U.S. foreign interests fell. So when I sort of learned all this and started to put this together as a young adult, it became a big problem for me.
0: Right. So do you recall or do you know how these news were arriving in the U.S. at the time? How were uh, what was the perception of this conflict in, in the U.S.?
1: I think that at the, in the U.S. at the time, I think there was very little understanding about the Greek context. Um, I think, um, you know, I think the a- sort of average American would have thought that the United States, you know, is fighting communism, and communism is, you know, is is an evil Soviet Union is the commun- communist sort of puppet around the world, mm. um, and Greece is a small country in the Mediterranean, and. Yeah. Um, you know, when the Greek military took over and began a dictatorship, you know the official u s uh, policy statement was that there's nothing they could do they they didn't orchestrate this um, um, I remember having conversations with my father questioning him, and he said, "We told the colonels to go back to their barracks, you know to mm-hmm. turn the government back over to a democracy, but they didn't do that. So I think that it was a small you know I, I think Greece at the time in the u s was um you know was was not seen as a um a major you know um, mm-hmm. place really I think it was um, kind of a marginal place, although at the time it was really a like a, a line in the sand i mean I think in terms of foreign policy, Greece was this place we have to keep communism there mm-hmm. if it, if, it if, if Greece falls into the communist realm, then all right. of Eastern, you know
0: the the normal narrative of should this uh, it, it increase, it will spread like a virus and and create some kind of infection around the world, or the, the traditional building of such conflicts. Yeah. So for you coming back home, did you feel like an outsider in some respects or were you too young to really feel that kind of um, level of cultural, I guess, assimilation when you first got back?
1: You know, I think I wouldn't say it was, um, a a sense of cultural assimilation because I, you know, I was in an American family. Um, you know, we spoke uh, English at home. Um, so, but I did feel, so, I mean, I can't, you know, I wasn't culturally Greek and and I didn't earn that sense of. displacement when I came home, but you know, I did feel very traumatized. Um, it was my first home and it was my first leaving of home Mm -hmm. and it was a very different. It was very different to leave Greece, the different language, the different you know culture, food, um, weather, um, right. you know the way people are. It was much more of a warm, open culture, <laughs> yeah, you know, and then I came to sort of my family's world, the sort of Catholic slash Protestant, you know, white people's, Texas, and oh wow, I think you know that that was <laughs> I felt the trauma of that,
0: right, you know. And kids, they get so accustomed to their surrounding, in particular their home. I always think about this because my family moved from Mexico when I was ten years old. That's a little bit older than your experience, but there was that sort of like a severed limb of of where home is, and so I I feel like that's something that stuck with me for a long time. Do you feel that way? Like home, in particular, is an issue for you?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think you know when my i mean growing up the the kid of a spy a cia officer means meant for me and my sister as it means for most spy kids that i talk to you move a lot you move around a lot you move every two years um looking back i feel lucky that i lived in greece for five and a half years um home became a problem for me because there was constant sort of displacement mm-hmm. and so so i think that's one of the reasons that home that my greek home stayed so rooted was because i really got a chance to feel my roots there um when we left it started to be every two years we would you know move to a new city new school new friends mm. so um so home really as a writer and as a you know as a human really became a central issue where do i feel at home i feel at home mm. in greece yeah. um i would go back to greece in my 20s and 30s and and get a, get a hit of home, but then also get a hit of being an outsider.
2: Right.
1: Um, so never quite fitting. You know, it, it's, it is similar in some ways to what a lot of, um, I don't know if you feel this way when you go back to Mexico or people who are sort of multicultural or bicultural. Um, I, I can relate.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm a hundred percent placeless, I'll say that. <laughs> but you know That's a I, good that's a good way to put it. <laughs> but for you, I imagine you're also an essayist, a journalist, and and I imagine that that allowed you a way in to to continue to observe. But was writing always a part of your life when you were about that age, or did you come into it later?
1: I started writing poetry, um, I would say when I was um in elementary school. Um, fifth grade, sixth grade. I wrote a poem. Um, I wrote poetry through high school, throughout high school. Um, while my dad was an intelligence officer, my mother was an artist. She was a, a painter, oh, wow. um, and her family was from Texas. So her, her, you know, her family was generationally five generations back from San Antonio, Texas. Hmm. So, and there were there were many artists in her family. So I really grew up with this sense of um, of creativity. Um, I had, I had an uncle, my mother's brother was a journalist. Mm-hmm. My father's brother was a poet and an English professor. So there was a lot of writing sort of, you know, around the, on yeah. that on the, the so outwards.
0: Was your dad, the anomaly in his family where he went into, into this kind of, uh, CIA intelligence sort of service.
1: Mm. Well, in his family, um, my, my mom's family was the artist family. My dad's family, my dad's father was, um, was what we call a wildcatter. So he was, he became a geologist. He worked his way through, um, university, um, and went out on his own speculating in the Midwest, um, for mineral rights. Right. So these were the years of the big oil boom Mm -hmm. and he was an individual and he had a partner. They went around, they they looked at different properties, they speculated where oil would be found someday and bought little bits mm. of these. And that's how he made his money because eventually at some point, the big oil companies came and on one of his, one of the land plots that he had some ownership, there were some strikes. <laughs> so my grandfather was really a, a businessman and mm. he was very, um, he he didn't really like the government, the US government um kind of like a lot of midwestern people today. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> you know. And um so he was really a government a biz- uh, an anti-government business person. And so when my when my dad decided to go into the government to become a CIA officer, um that's not something that his family his, his father and mother were really in alignment with. Mm. He, he was supposed to be a business person, make money.
0: <laughs> right, right. Wasn't too thrilled about that, I yeah. imagine. So for you, you have a family that has this kind of duality where there, there are some secrets in the family already that I imagine you're starting to become aware of at that early age. But you also have the art of expression, which is, I imagine, a, a form of tension right there in the family. Can you tell me a bit about what that environment was like growing up for you mm-hmm. in, in the household once you got mm-hmm. back?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you, you really hit it when you say it, it was a kind of tension because my mother was always a working painter and i watched her paint many Mm. many hours she painted me she sketched me (laughs) um she was often i would see her sort of uh, her eyes sort of glaze over as she fell into sort of an artist (laughs) trance and you know she wasn't kind of present with the outer world she was with her inner creativity as she was looking at at a canvas and Um, and that was very normal to me. Um, in our home, she was always collecting beautiful, interesting objects. We really lived in a, in a house that was, that had an aesthetic to it. Mm. And I sort of was, you know, that cultivated a sense of creativity and imagination in me. Um, you know, slipped to the other side of the aisle and my, my father is pretty compartmentalized. He's pretty preoccupied. I think he had a real appreciation for art. Um, and he, he was always very complimentary about my mom's, um, you know, paintings. And he, he was, I think he, I think he really enjoyed it and appreciated the way that that stretched him, Mm -hmm. but he wasn't, um, I didn't see him doing anything creative. So it was sort of like, we had this very creative, open mother who expressed, you know, her, her visions. And then a father who was pretty you know kept things close to his vest pretty shut down around where his what the, what he was thinking about or where he went yeah. um so it was kind of a it, it was a little bit of um you know um whiplash you
0: know. <laughs> yeah I can, I can imagine such contrast just sort of becoming a, a conflict in your own life um and and trying to figure out Cause I, I mean, I do, I do think, you know what they say that like our kids learn how to, how to be themselves through us, you know, they model a lot. And so, uh, when did you find out what worked for you? Were you more of a compartmentalized person or, or somebody who who was more ready to be open in your own Mm -hmm. life?
1: You know, I think I thought about that for so long and I I really feel like, um, I, I feel like I have the the legacy of both parents in both ways in me i mean i think i certainly grew up in a house that didn't talk about feelings my mother had breast cancer Hmm. um and we we didn't talk about that openly um very much at all Uh, my parents were sort of late 50s early 60s you know people um and so they were sort of a generation or maybe almost two generations back in a way yeah um So I did grow up in a compartmentalized kind of family culture. We didn't talk about our secrets. We didn't talk about um, our feelings very much. Um, It was a loving home, but it was that's what it was culturally. And so I think I really had to um, journey through many years of therapy, um, talking with other family members who had a different way of looking at life and healing, and you know, and family. Um, I, I really worked to. Um, name my feelings and understand how I felt, and have my mm. feelings. Um, and that was a life, you know, lifelong journey. Right. So, right. so you know, once I was able to understand how I feel and name feelings, and grieve the loss of my mother when she died, and mm. and the anger I felt at my father for his work, and you know, the way it yeah. dragged us around from city to city. And once I was able to sort of you know, recover myself, right? Um I think I I, I had I've grown into a place where um I've shed a lot of my compartmentalization.
2: Mm,
1: I see. Um, you know, and it's still there and I can always find it in me. Um, you know, when I talk to other people
0: who have spy parents.
1: We always marvel that we can keep a secret really well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because it seems that you have found a community of folks who are very much in in the same shoes that you're in, which is this idea. And I I thought it was so fascinating. There was a quote, I believe it was in the Stuart Copeland podcast where he said, uh, parents choose this to be in, in the world of secrecy, but their kids do not. And so it's just something that I'd never thought about. And how does one go about finding this community that is so secretive or the aftermath of secrecy?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, You got to poke around a lot and, um, (laughs) you know, bother people. Um, I mean, when you're the child of a CIA officer, or of course, there's a lot of other intel agencies, right? You can be there's There's an intelligence wing of the Department of Defense, of the Pentagon, of the Army of the Navy, right? So there's a lot of Intel groups or, you know, um, branches mm-hmm. in the government. Um but the CIA is this kind of, you know, all the Hollywood spy myths are sort of built around this kind of, you know, quintessential spy. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, as a when individuals join the agency, it's a it's a choice they go through nowadays they have all these polygraphs and all these papers they sign my father when he joined it was a very different world and his interview with the cia was was really peculiar um but he did join it was a decision he signed his name right Mm -hmm. Um, He was a full-grown adult um but the kids um we just it just was kind of like the air we breathe some kind of secret something about in my case my father my dad's work we just keep the secret we don't even know what the secret is so that's trippy keep a secret you don't yet you haven't yet been told (laughs) um and so it's really hard to um sort of come out and when i talk to other spy kids i've talked to many who who never do um they don't feel like it's safe to tell people that their parent was in the cia or some intelligence you know branch they're not practiced at it they carry a real sense of loyalty to the parent not to speak it mm.
2: um
1: it, it's not a clear path i when i look out at other at other people and um and i i think with a lot of people and have who i think um they really don't share it
0: yeah yeah and i imagine that's got to be so complicated because you might feel like you're the only one for for a long time to be holding on to something that might be unbearable. It's like this inherited sort of loyalty that you had no choice in, you know, uh, fulfilling, and now you're stuck with it for the rest of your days. So, I was going to ask you about this other aspect of your life, which is your identity, because now you have you have the the past that is coming with you, uh, your the secrecy of your parents, you know, like moving from a from a different place and starting to find your own, and of course now you have your identity that you have to contend with. How is that? sort of discovery coming about in your life as you were trying to deal with these other areas of your life. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I think that um growing up starting out in a family that had secrets that was kind of compartmentalizing there's art and then there's the not, then there's <laughs> world. Yeah. You know, um real world art. Um I think, you know, I learned to compartmentalize and I learned to just sort of um, uh, not share Mm. And I, I think you know when I started in elementary school, I always had best friends um, who were girls. At some point, there was a an incident on on school bus when a boy called me a lessee, mm. and you know I I knew that lessee was bad. I knew that it meant homosexual. I, I didn't really even know how I knew all of that, but that's that really made an imprint on me, and and I kind of doubled down on the secret after that, I see. Um, keeping it secret was sort of natural to me. But then I sort of doubled down. And, um, and I guess I would say that it was, you know, um, it felt normal to not be open as I'm going through elementary school and junior high and high school, it felt uh, familiar, let's say felt familiar, Mm. to kind of keep this to myself, not really say it, I would always sort of pursue connections with girls, but not in an overt, you know acknowledged way you know kind of the slippery thing um and i think that coming out ultimately in my 20s while that's not super late in life it was a very foggy process i you know i didn't am i by am i not by how does anybody know what they are it for me it was just kind of um muffly and foggy a little bit of my coming out journey. And I think that has a lot to do with you. I sort of grew up in a in a house that had a lot of fog in in it already.
0: Sure, sure. So from those moments in your twenties when you were really coming to discover who you really are to the point where you have compiled a book out of these experiences. How long was that process to put this book together from those those memories or did you feel you had to be removed from those things that happened to to start writing can you tell me about that a little bit
1: Mm -hmm. um well i would say you know the you know this book was a journey of of really many decades and mostly i would say it was a journey of my whole life i mean um i started writing it maybe officially when i was 40 i'm in my 50s now 57 Mm -hmm. you know so maybe i i officially have started writing it whatever however we're um but but i feel like um it was i was working on these questions i mean mostly what happened was my upbringing my own struggles with my sexual identity my struggles to know my father as he as he is a clandestine person who doesn't consciously doesn't share himself all of these things were like my life problems and i was working on them you know, starting in my 20s, trying to figure out my mm. father, trying to figure myself out, feeling my shame about what he did in, a, in another country that was my first yeah. home. Um, so it was just sort of working on it in therapy, in my journal, um, always.
0: Mm. And I forgot you know? to ask you politically, when did that become a, a, a point of clarity for you ideologically mm-hmm. where you felt, Dad, you and I disagree fundamentally mm-hmm. on the work that happened there on the things Mm -hmm. that took place there
1: um another great question well you know when i was in my uh, after graduating from college i joined a women's soccer team and i met um a lesbian couple from cyprus um which is culturally greek it's its own small country but it's a culturally greek place and it has its own history with um you know with the greek military and um, and it's now a divided island, right? And so I met these two Cypriot um, lesbians, and we talked politics a lot. Mm-hmm. And I learned the story of Cyprus. I learned how it was its own individual, you know, um, country. And then the Greek um, dictators, the Greek military, they had already taken over Greece. They were already running a dictatorship there. But they decided they wanted to take over the island of Cyprus, join Cyprus. That was their big. Uh, their big dream joined Cyprus with Greece, so they invaded Cyprus, and it was a failed invasion. Mm-hmm. And Turkey counter-invaded, and the result was um, Cyprus became divided. Um, it now has, a, you know, a Turkish um, presence um, controlling the north, and this is a, you know, a problem, an unresolved international um, situation that mm-hmm. um, that happened and. It had everything to do with the Greek military and the Greek dictatorship. And so when I'm talking to them and I'm finding out about what happened to their country and the Greek military took over and now it's, you know, it's divided and their, their home has, you know, barriers. Um, and they, you know, the conversation wound around to the CIA and they said, my friend said, the CIA knew this was going to happen. They knew that the Greeks were going to come over and try to take over the island. And they did nothing. And as soon as my friend said CIA, I thought, oh, good. <laughs> Could this get any worse? <laughs> yes, it will. And, and I confessed it to them. I said, well, you know, my father works for the CIA. you know, And I felt such shame. They just told me the sad story of their island nation and how it became divided. And my father was why? That's how I heard it. And I think that was really when it crystallized for me that I had a problem with what he did with CIA and its role and setting up a dictatorship in Greece and then trying to take over Cyprus. And that's really when um, that really sort of um, radicalized me in
0: that way. And that's such a powerful moment because you start to see these conflicts from the eyes of human beings, not from a geopolitical standpoint or, you know, this side and that side, it's this person lost their home or this person that you got to know and have an exchange with has their life completely uprooted by our side, the good side, quote unquote, always, every time. It's really powerful stuff. Looking at how you, you're an educator, right? And correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. How does that come into your life as well? I mean, just uh, finding your way to that profession. You
1: know, when I went to college and was able to, Take liberal arts classes that mattered to me, that helped me put together uh, um, a story about the world and about you know American history and U.S. foreign policy. You know, I mean, I went to Boston University. I took women's studies classes. Now it's sort of like gender queer world. <laughs> um, this was the predecessor. You know, um, I took you know women's studies. I took a lot of um, courses on. American politics. I, my major was American culture, um, and so I was able to put together and understand this country better, and sort of study um, what I think what was a, a you know a corrected, um, more humane and diverse understanding of what this country can be, and mm. and that's what I learned in college, and that's that shaped me from then on. So I think. Yeah. The power of education to really help us know who we are and help us figure out what we want to do with our lives and how to maybe make this country or our communities um, you know healthier um, education can really play a big role and I think that the, that's where um, I learned that
0: lesson mm. I couldn't agree more I just wish we could invest more as a country in education I think we'd be in a way better place than where we are now and since I have you here, I'm curious, this is for completely selfish reasons, what, what do you think is is the biggest problem that we have as a country right now uh, that we have to contend with, first and foremost? Because we um, we are bombarded with so many different perspectives on what the essential imperative thing to handle right here, right now. And I feel like we are in this sort of maze of opinion where we can't tell anymore what the most... Core issues are in our country. Do you, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just curious on you. You know your perspective from your years of being an educator and seeing it.
1: Well, I'll answer that to the best of my ability, and then I want to, yeah, Sorry. and then I want to punt it back to you <laughs> because I want to hear your view. Yeah, sure. Um, um, I you know I think when I look out now the landscape of this country, um. I think if it was if it was a number of years ago and you had asked me that question, I would answer with some um, some kind of um, issue or you know um, dilemma in this in this country, like you know this increasing disparity between you know people who have the concentration of wealth being in you know in the small percentage of Americans and then you know the vast majority of, of of people not having um, the sort of a basic um, ability to, to to live, and mm-hmm. so I think that's what I would have said you know, and that's still very true, but I, I feel now the biggest issue is is a much more compassionate, humane human to human issue in which we need to um, you know listen to one another's stories, however mm-hmm. you know different they are, and, and become more practiced again at um, tolerating and and really sort of trying to be receptive and take in um, something that we don't understand i think it's a very basic elemental place where we are as a country now um you know what are your thoughts on that question
0: well i i do agree because i think we've lost our way in empathy and and this is such a you know I I feel like when I say empathy now, it just feels so trite because again, it's one of those things that loses its meaning, but we need an empathy building social apparatus of some kind, you know, like I always say, Hey, the arts are that, but the arts are already tainted by this perspective of like, Oh, they only belong to this, this group of people, right? The, the well to do's. So, I mean, I I do think that it's for me, there's, there's like a triad of things, right? You're looking at, that empathy or interpersonal sort of connection thing that we need education, like just throw throw everything we have at education and mental health. Like I think those three things, without them, like we're gonna fall apart in I don't know five years. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, it's it's hard to put a timeline on it, but I just feel like I I really respect that point of view of yours because you've seen it. You know, mm-hmm. as somebody who's who. Has been in any classroom of any shape or form. It's. Mm-hmm. I can imagine you have a lot of stories, learning experiences as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and as you're talking and as, as I'm listening to you, I'm reminded of you know I work with high school students, many who have learning differences. I help them sort of um, become stronger students and just sort of navigate high school. And I think earlier in my practice, say five, ten years ago. Um, everything, I was more directed toward grades and out, you know, outcomes as were they, as were their schools, mm-hmm. as were their families, but now the landscape has changed and a lot of my, my work is still, you know, responding to, you know, training work in and, and getting adequate grades, but mental health, mm-hmm. I see myself now as I'm here to ha- help you feel supported.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, help my students feel supported. That's really um, become most most important to me now.
0: Yeah. That's so wild. I bet you can see this massive disparity between how things were when you were a student versus how you are helping these kids along. I mean, do you feel like there was any empathy at all from the educators back in the day? (laughs)
1: Maybe a little, um, you know, you know, from individuals I did, you know, I went to, you know, I went to, my high school was a very sort of privileged private Mm -hmm. Um, High school outside of Washington D.C. in Northern Virginia, Um, and you know, it's a very, very wealthy girls went to that school, and you know, um, the education was a was a very um, high level in one sense. But here I was, you know, this like baby dyke who wasn't out yet, had just lost my mother, and my father, Mm -hmm. in this bewildering occupation that you know Mm -hmm. makes me feel further alone and. And when my mother died, I was at this school and I was a boarding school, a boarding student at that time. Mm -hmm. And I remember I felt very alone and very depressed. And um, there really wasn't any school response. There wasn't a therapist or a psychologist who to talk to. There were individual teachers who were kind. Um, And that's what I would say back in the day, individuals who reached out. But... Now the school is completely different and the school has, you know, yeah. um, all kinds of mental health services. But back then it was really like the hinterland.
0: Yeah. And just to clarify the timeline, your mom passed very early on when you were quite young, it seems, right? You were um, still in high school age.
2: Yes, you know, I was 16. Oh, goodness. was 16. Oh was Such so. a
0: difficult time. I mean, on, on top of everything else, I mean, it's still shapes a lot of what you have to say, don't you think?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think um there's been a lot written about, you know, when you like motherless children and when you lose your mother and you're still a child, um it, it just, you know, it it caused a such a long grieving. I mean I, I grieve always. I grieve still. I grieve my grief for losing her is um, is a reality. You know, it it shapes my life. It wasn't an event
2: yeah. or
1: something. You know, it, it's a you know to live without my mother. And I think especially since she died when she was young. You know, not as an older person. I lost my father also. He was much more of a an older person, right? So yeah, it it's um, it really opened a a sorrow in me mm. that is you know. Is a
0: presence. Yeah. Yeah. Is there solace to be found in the writing of a book about your family? Like when you see these pieces coming together, because I, I tend to I've said this a few times on the podcast, but it seems like memories just lose their, their place, right? You you after a while you don't know where they belong, and it seems like you need to see them in this kind of shape to put them back where they belong in your mind. Do you feel like some kind of relief? comfort comes from an undertaking like this for you
1: yes I do Um, I feel early in my life writing words onto the page was a healing, was a way I uh, were each word was a breadcrumb that I could follow Mm. um, to find myself and to arrive at myself Again and again, and so writing has been a you know a life survival strategy mm-hmm. um, and a self you know a self um, self making yeah. um, practice. Yeah. Right. So when I was working on this book, um, I had the it was very painful to write some scenes over and over again to try to get them right. Mm. As I try to get them right on the page, I'm re-experiencing re-traum- being re-traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. um, and that was very difficult um and i I suffered mm. as I did that um and however, it also allowed me to be with my family, you know, and so for all these years, as I'm working on this this book, I'm with my family and i'm mm. I'm describing them every day in this way or that way. I'm revising this or that scene, and I get to sort of um drop back down to that sort of um mysterious time that is childhood and and be with them. And so there was a way that I held them close also.
0: Oh goodness. Do you uh have siblings that went through this with you as well?
1: Yeah. I do. I have a sister. I had a sister. My sister passed away oh, I see. um a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister was two years younger than myself and um you know she was more of a she was also an artist was a gifted artist um she lived as an artist she was a very much more of a sort of a an introverted person in the sense that you know she was very sensitive and very aware and very perceptive of the world and of other people and she had a real gift Mm -hmm. um in terms of her you know um awareness um, of herself and others so We had a different way that we kind of responded, you know, and coped with, yeah. you know, um, growing up.
0: Okay. So, looking at this uh, book as um as an enterprise going out to see the world, were there some things that scared you about putting this out into the world? Uh, did you fear for your safety? Did you feel like, oh, this? Did you have second thoughts about mm-hmm. getting this out there? Yes, I had second thoughts
1: constantly. <laughs> Um, especially, um, you know, the big, the main years of working on it, so, you know, 2000, you know, um, five through for, for probably about 10 years hmm. as I worked on it and revised it and it evolved and I researched and I added things to it and I right. had it edited. Um, I was always terrified. I was terrified all the time that, I was betraying my family. I was a mm-hmm. bad daughter for you know doing what was essentially an investigation of my father. I was researching books, talking to scholars, trying to prove that he was you know um, on the wrong side of the Cold War or you know on the mm-hmm. wrong side of certainly the issues in Greece, I was trying to yeah. prove his culpability, you know and um, because of my love for Greece and my sense of what was uh, you know morally right and what was morally wrong and mm-hmm. So, but I loved my father the whole time. So I was constantly in struggle. Um, and I just tried really hard to give myself permission to, um, just have the journey, the emotional journey I was having and the, the ultimately the published product at the end of all this, that was still a ways off and I Mm -hmm. still have control over it. And this is what I told myself. I don't think it, it didn't really diminish my, my terror. I always thought um, you you can't write this about your father. You can't say these things. Um, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, writing had always led me to a place of clearing and, um, a place of healing. And so I just said, I'm going to trust you writing, Mm -hmm. even though it is tough.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I thank you for your honesty on that because it's such a huge threshold to, Go past, you know, that barrier where you feel like, am I turning my back on my family? Especially for folks who are just on the verge of doing that, I think it's really inspiring to hear, knowing that uh, there is a kind of redemption, you know, on the other side of that that kind of fear. Just a couple more questions to be mindful of your time, because I know we've—I sure. you know, could listen to you, this like, give me fabulous, some, story, some stories all day. Yeah, I love it. Um, What were the main takeaways from the process of writing this, just from a technical point of view? um, What were some things that you learned in that process? Um,
1: I learned, I guess the foremost, I learned that memoir, um, writing, you know, the story of one's life, not the autobiography, not a list of events, but the story of one's life um and takes the time that it takes mm. and i think i felt like i was done with it and certainly had a draft you know 10 years ago mm. um and it just wasn't wasn't done it more life was lived i had more conversations with my father Ma- major things shifted for me which then required me to go back into the manuscript i think i was revising and rewriting um for continually Mm. i couldn't even tell you how many drafts of this book i've i've written because they were some scenes have been rewritten a thousand times easily um so it's just a memoir especially i think is this evolving you know as you evolve it changes Mm -hmm. and i always wanted it to be its most um up-to-date truth so i never wanted you know something kind of dusty to go out there because it didn't feel real anymore. Right. So so it's it's quite an undertaking but the thing is it's every time I rewrote a scene or rewrote the whole draft I was in a more elevated place. I saw more, I was mm. rewarded more, I had more insight. Um and a lot of a lot of times I shared these pieces, right? I shared them with other um writers and writing groups or I had them mm. published um i started to see that the sharing you know was a kind of community and um and there was more and more reward
0: oh that's um, great as i went
1: along
0: so there was a component there where you needed to have a support system too of having a writing group of some kind right over the years uh, along with being patient going back and doing your own rewrites and and compiling on your own but also relying on a group of individuals who might give you some kind of feedback were these folks who were, who had similar experiences or were these part of a writer's group uh, that had no um, affiliation with the issue? Mm,
1: I think, you know, I've had, I've been in many different writing groups um, and always had fairly positive experiences. I mean, they're essential, you know, to um, just a feeling, the support around how difficult it is to write. And then also to get really honest feedback about, how the writing sits on the page. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, I I did go to an MFA program. um, So I had a lot of, I took a lot of courses, you know, in a creative writing program. Um, And I think that the writers that are sort of in my support network now, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they're, you know, they're they're like, my core support writers are two women who are Jewish, so they have sort of this cultural you know one is not the sort of dominant jewish culture of america so th- they have their own kind of ways that they feel that they are the other mm. and so i i think that that's important to me is that i'm around writers who have a sense of outsiderness, yeah. a sense of fitting and not fitting i think that's if that's how you feel if that's how somebody feels in their work or in their life, that's really important Mm. to find others who can echo that. I I have, and, um, I feel like that
0: I will be better. I'm better understood. Um, yeah, that way. So, um, two more, two more things, maybe three more things. (laughs) So, uh, just to close on the book, what do you think is the biggest takeaway that you would like to share, um, to a, a, Potential audience or somebody who might be interested in in getting a new read.
1: Um, I love that question, and I was just journaling that question this morning, <laughs> so I'm really ready um, i The biggest takeaway for me, you know there's a lot of uh, difficulty and and you know sadness that I went through in my life and that is in these pages. Um, but the biggest and the biggest di- the takeaway is that I came to a place of reconciliation with my father and a place of forgiveness for him and um and a a healing. And that is worth everything. Um I, I struggled with my relationship with him. He wasn't very accepting of my sexuality, he didn't understand me, um, he was on the wrong side of things, I thought. Um, and I he was my only parent that that was surviving for so many years. So I, I really um, struggled with him, but the takeaway is that uh, we found our way back to each other and in, in an honest way, not in rose colored glasses. It's all good. (laughs) No problem. You know, in an earned way. Um, But it's, it's, it's the gift. It's the gift of this book for me is that it brought me back into my love for my father. And, I released back to him what was his career that had really no nothing to do with me. It wasn't my responsibility to hold it, um, but I did hold it for many years, and so I let that go, and and it allowed me to come back into knowing that he was an essentially a good person, and I won't know everything um, about his, you know, um, his work, and and I don't need to. Um, that's
2: his, that's
0: his path. Mm. Powerful. Lastly, I I tend to get superficial and sort of uh, idealistic about things, but what is something that inspired you to write when you were younger? Mm. And what's something that you are enjoying now? Uh, Like whether it's a, a piece of writing that you, a book that you're reading or uh, movie that you saw, just a piece of art that um, really took your breath away?
1: I think what inspired me when I was younger um, were a lot of women writers, women of color writers, feminist writers, um, Audre Lorde, um, Zami, the, the, um, her autobiography of her life, her memoir of her life. A New Telling of My Name, um, Audrey and Rich, a, a lot of poets. Um, my, my uncle, um, Tom Absher is a poet, mm. and a lot of his writings about our family um, inspired me mm. and continue to. Um, I think now, um, you know, I, I am such a memoir reader and nonfiction reader. Um, I'm reading a book, Uh, by Juniper Fitzgerald right now. Um it's out on feminist press. Um and it's just about her sort of um her her, you know, life growing up in an abused kind of Mm -hmm. world and how she recovers herself. I I always want to read read or see um art that goes through a transformation that changes me, that brings me into deep gratitude and deep um you know deep sense of sacredness and that's that's what I look for um whether it's a painting or just looking outside and walking in nature right something that opens me up to the deep you know sacred mystery of this life that's what that's what sustains me.
0: Mm. Awesome. Awesome. One more one more you killed that answer. That was an amazing answer, but I want to ask you one more. What would you say to somebody who is just starting out on their creative journey? As somebody who has gone through it, who has gone through that, you know, trial by fire to, uh, to get a work produced and finished, what are some words to pass on?
1: Um, great question. And I would say um, it's true what all the writers say and the creators say that um, to stay determined. Um, because this book had a journey of fifteen years of various kinds of rejections, rewrites, finding an agent finding an agent who couldn't sell it, starting again, rewriting it. Um I just never I always had a vision that it could be the book that it is now. I I knew it could. Um and I just, you know, sometimes I took breaks, go away, come back, but I just never stopped. And That allowed me someday, crazy, crazy as it is, to submit my manuscript to this, the press, the publisher I have now. Um, And once I did that, it was the right, it was finally the right publisher. And they read it and they fought for it and they saw the vision that I saw and um, worked with me and they elevated the story Mm -hmm. um, through a developmental edit and I couldn't have, I couldn't be more rewarded for all the time and tenacity that I put in. Uh, you got to be stubborn. That's my final message. Be stubborn. Are you a stubborn person? Oh, you're in luck. This is going to work out for you.
0: Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. And that's a beautiful note to end on. But Leslie, I want to thank you for your inspiration, for being so honest about your story today. And and sharing with such, you know, candor and just being open as well as just reminding us that there is light at the end of the tunnel when you're seeking truth. It's just so beautiful um, and uh, super inspiring. So I know we just scratched the surface, but I want to thank you for spending the time.
1: This has been so pleasurable, such a joy for me. Your questions were so insightful. Um, I'll be thinking about our conversation all day and I I appreciate it so much.
0: Thank you so much. That means the world. I'll be in touch. I'm going to bug you over email. Stay tuned. All right. Thank you so much, Jaime. Yeah, thank you, Leslie. You take care. Okay, you too. (laughs) Bye-bye.